Good morning. It's great to see you all today, and uh, it's been a good week for us and my family. We've recently moved into a new house, and uh, yeah, it's really chaotic around our house. We tried to take off a couple of days from work this week to try to get some things put up. Uh, one of the things that was on our plate was we have a study uh, in this new house. We didn't have one in our old one, so we had to go out and get a desk. Uh, where my wife will sit and pay bills because I don't. Um, and so we thought we'd just swing by and pick up one of these that you just put together with a few handy instructions in a couple of hours, and then we'd be done. We could move on. So about 9.30, we knocked off work on the desk. We'd been working on it all day. We flipped it over and found out that some of the work we had done had scarred up the top of it. Um, so we went to bed in a bad mood. Let's just put it that way. But the next day I woke up and I told Carrie, you know, I'm really impressed. We've made a lot of progress because we didn't yell at each other once yesterday during that whole process. And you, you remember when Kaylee was little and we put together that swing set for her and we didn't talk to each other for a good week afterwards. I mean, it was, it was ugly. Um, and so we've actually grown. That's good news. Now we've got some harsh words for the people who sold us the desk, but you know, that's another matter. Uh, I won't tell you the place where we bought it, so if it goes up in flames this week, you won't be able to blame us, but uh, that's a joke. That's a joke. <laughs> Daniel 4 is where we are today, Daniel chapter 4. Years ago, when I was at my previous church, um, the youth minister and I met one night with a teenager in the student ministry, and he wanted to get together with us because he was really mad at his parents. Now, I know that's not unusual. I think all of us, when we were teenagers, we got mad at our parents, and, and some teenagers are pretty convinced their parents are fascists, but uh, this was beyond that. This was something where he was, he was ready to just run away from home, to just declare, I have no a loyalty to my mom and dad. He told us all, the, all of his grievances and, and you know, all the reasons why he didn't feel like he needed to obey them. And I said, okay. And I let him talk for a while. I let him get it all off his chest. And then I said, okay, but you've grown up in church. You know what the Bible says. And it's very unequivocal that you are under their authority as long as you live under their roof. Therefore, you obey them. And even once you grow up and you move out of their house, you still show them honor. You still show them respect. That's a command from God. That's not negotiable. And I said, unless you're being abused in some way and, and you need to get out for your own safety or unless your parents are making you uh, do something contrary to the will of God and, and that nothing you've told me says that's the case, then you need, to, you need to submit. You need to obey your parents because obeying them is like obeying God. And he said, well, that's the way you read the Bible, but it's not the way I read the Bible. And I said, okay, but listen, I get that there are parts of the Bible that are open to interpretation. There are things where, there are parts of it where people of good faith can believe different things and still agree that God is God. You know, Re book of Revelation is an example, but, but this is not one of those things. I mean, this is, like I said, unequivocal. God did not leave any room for error on this. And, and by the way, people, since the very beginning of the Christian faith, since the beginning, since the time the canon of, of Scripture was closed, everyone has read the Bible that same way. And he said, well, you know, people can be wrong, and I think, I think I'm one, I, I think I've figured out a different way to read the Bible. And, and I just, I was blown away by this. This kid thought that in 2,000 years... He was the first one to discover that God didn't really mean it when he said, obey your mom and dad. And later on, he was serious too. He wasn't being ironic. Later on, I found out that he had been diagnosed by a psychologist with 
uh, narcissistic personality disorder, which is no laughing matter. Uh, I didn't know much about that, so I looked it up, and I found out what narcissism is. And narcissism is the tendency to inflate your own self, your, your sense of self, and, and how important you are. Uh, you want people to address you and pay attention to you and, and not their own selves. You, you like, you, you're subject to flattery. You do not like to be corrected or confronted. You will not apologize, and you will not admit that you're wrong or that you need to change. And you think about that, and you think about our culture today. And I'm more and more convinced that our, our, our culture is becoming a culture of narcissists. And I don't mean we all have that mental disorder. I mean we all are, are headed in a direction where it's all about me, and I will not give in to anyone else. Think about, think about the people we see on movie screens and on, on the television. Think about the, the people we worship as celebrities. i got to be honest with you and I'm going to sound like an old man when I say this, I don't know why half of these people are famous. And yet, we're obsessed with what they eat for dinner and who they're dating and what they're wearing to the next award ceremony. Think about, think about athletes who we venerate so much. Man, when I was growing up, I was told there's no I in team, and it's just as important to be a man of character as it is to win. But today, the, the coaches and athletes who put themselves first are the ones we give the big contracts to. Think about our political leaders and how in generations gone by, we wanted uh, the press to, to ruthlessly grill our political leaders and make sure, hold them accountable, ask them the tough questions. Today, if, if a politician doesn't like the question he's asked, he doesn't answer it. If, if someone on his staff disagrees with him, he fires them. If, if uh, we try to hold them accountable, they refuse, and we still keep electing them. We're becoming a culture of narcissists. Think about us. When's the last time you really apologized? I mean really apologized to someone. I don't mean what we usually do where you say, listen, I, I'm sorry that I hurt your feelings. Uh, you, of course, realize that when you act that way, it really irritates me, and, and you should know by now that I don't handle that well. But I suppose because I made you cry, I, I should be apologizing, and I'll try to do better. That's not an apology. That's what we say, but it's not an apology. That's narcissism. That's all about me and how you affect me. Really, you're apologizing because that person inconvenienced you by crying. When's the last time someone came to you with a word of criticism and you accepted it graciously? Whether it was your boss or your parent or your spouse or your friend or even a, a, a person who's a persistent critic, but when's the last time you heard them say something negative and you said, you know what? You, you probably have a point there. I do need to change. See, the only cure for narcissism is humility. And humility is something we don't like to talk about. And it's certainly not something we'd like to aspire to. I don't know any little children who say, when I grow up, I want to be humble. And yet, it's all through the Scriptures. Humility won't put a dollar in your pocket. It won't put you on the cover of a magazine. Last time I checked, the, the head cheerleader doesn't go to the prom with the humblest guy in our high school. That's just not the way the world works. We don't reward humility, but God does. So as we look at the story of Daniel, and the reason we're studying Daniel isn't just because it's full of some really cool stories, which it is. It's because we want to be a church that produces people who make a difference in a world, in a culture where so much is antithetical to our gospel, right? 
And if that's true today, if most of our neighbors, if most of the things we see in popular culture disagree with our values and disagree with our beliefs, think how it was for Daniel and his three friends when they went to a culture where they even had to take on the name of foreign gods. They had to learn another language. They had to be trained to serve this other government where the values were completely different. And they didn't just survive. They didn't just hold on to what they had. They changed the culture. And in chapter four, which we're gonna look at today, they changed it in a very powerful way. You see an incredible thing happen, something unforeseen. In fact, chapter four is unique in the entire Bible because it's not written by an Israelite. It's not written by an apostle or a prophet. It's written by a pagan king, a man named Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was a military and political genius like nothing the world had ever seen at his time. He, he built an empire that consisted of every nation from Iraq to Egypt, from Turkey to Arabia, and he built the city of ancient Babylon. We've got a picture uh, of, an, this is an artist's conception of what uh, Babylon must have looked like. My son, by the way, pointed out to me that some, whoever created this did it on Minecraft. Anybody, any Minecraft friends here? And, and so that's pretty impressive stuff. But even more impressive is somebody actually built that in real life without computer graphics. You see the, the middle portion there, that's a depiction of the, the hanging gardens of Babylon, which was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Nebuchadnezzar built that as a gift to his wife to remind her of the mountainous region where she grew up, which means that you and I as husbands, we're, we're like, we're distant seconds. There's no way we can compete with that. He built so many new buildings in Babylon, the inscriptions on the buildings alone would fill 126 pages of a book. He built a wall around the city. I don't think it's, yeah, you see the wall. The wall was wide enough at the top that a, a chariot and a team of horses could ride the circumference of the city atop the city wall. And so as we begin chapter four in verse four, Nebuchadnezzar is, is kicked back on the roof of his palace or on the wall of his, of his city, and he's just enjoying being the most powerful man on earth. And he says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. Now, we just got through with a series of sermons about how God speaks. And one of the things I said was, do not assume that anytime you have a dream, it's God trying to speak to you. Because when God speaks through dreams, and he does occasionally, two things are true in scripture. When God speaks through a dream, the person dreaming always knows that it's God and knows what the dream means because God supplies an interpretation. That's what happens here. Nebuchadnezzar has his dream. He sees this huge tree that stretches up into the heavens. The branches are so wide and so full that all the birds of all the earth can nest in those branches and all the animals of the world can, can shelter under its shade and eat of its fruit. And then an angel comes down and says, let's chop this tree down. And he goes on in verse 15 and says, let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him and let seven periods of time pass over him. And then he wakes up and he calls his advisors and counselors and none of them can interpret the dream for him. So then he calls Daniel. And he knows Daniel can do this because it's already happened in chapter two where Daniel's interpreted a dream for Nebuchadnezzar. And when he tells Daniel the dream, Daniel is shaken because believe it or not, he's actually grown to love this king, to have an affection for this man. 
He says, oh, king, I wish, I wish this were true of your enemies and not of you. And the king says, well, just go ahead and tell me. I need to hear it. He says, oh, king, you are that tree. God is trying to tell you that soon you're going to lose everything. Your kingdom is going to be ended, but not forever. That's why the stump in the tree stays in the ground. Your kingdom can be restored, but only once you know and acknowledge that the king of heaven is the king of earth, that my God is actually in charge, not you. And then Daniel says, and by the way, there's still a chance for you to avoid all of this, all of this happening to you. But here's what you got to do. And says in, as he says in verse 27, Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Notice he doesn't say what you would expect him to say. Here's Daniel. He's got the gift of prophecy, and he has a unique opportunity. How many chances do you have to stand in front of the most powerful man on earth and say, here, king, here's some things you need to do differently? And you would expect Daniel in that position to say, listen, Nebuchadnezzar, you invaded my homeland. You killed thousands of my people. You sacked the holy city, Jerusalem. You destroyed the temple of God. You pillaged its treasures. You want God to lay off of you? You want God to give you mercy? Then restore us to our homeland, rebuild our temple in our city, and God will look favorably upon you. That's what you or I would say. But Daniel is speaking for God. And what's highest on God's priority list right now in Nebuchadnezzar's life is you mistreat the poor. You use your position of authority only to bless yourself. You've built this magnificent city for your own glory, but you're not helping the poorest of the poor. In fact, all these building projects that you're so proud of, you did that with slave labor. You're exploiting those who are weak. And if you read the scriptures from beginning to end, you'll see that's how God really judges political leaders not based on their, their poll numbers and not based on the economy and not based on military strength or any of that, but based on how they treat the weakest and the lowest. Now, Nebuchadnezzar's no fool. As I've said, he's a military and political genius. He's already seen three different instances of the awesome power of God, like nothing his gods can do. Now here's Daniel, a man who he clearly trusts, telling him, here's what you've got to do to avoid disaster. And you would think that he would get right on that. But look what it says next in verse 28. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, 12 months, a full year goes by. Nebuchadnezzar hasn't changed his heart. He hasn't repented. He hasn't gotten down on his knees before God and said, show me what to do. 12 months pass. He was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, is not this the great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? And right then, God steps in and says, okay, you've had long enough. And clearly, your heart has not changed. And right then, Nebuchadnezzar's mind snaps. He suffers a profound mental break. And for the next, we believe, seven years, the Bible just says seven periods of time, for the next seven periods of time, whatever they might have been, he lives like an animal. His hair grows long and shaggy. He eats grass like a cow. His nails on his hands and feet grow out like the claws of an eagle. And he is completely isolated from humanity. 
And by the way, by the way, just so you know, this is not an indication that mental illness is always a judgment from God. That if someone suffers from mental illness, all they've got to do is repent of their sins and God's going to heal them. Because mental illness, by the way, which before you die, you've got a one in four chance of contracting a mental illness. So it's very common in our culture. Mental illness is no different from physical illness. It is an illness of the brain instead of the heart or the lungs or the arm or the knee. Secondly, I want you to notice that God gives Nebuchadnezzar a full year, a full year to repent, and he doesn't take it. But at the end of that time, at the end of his time of abandonment of sanity, he comes back to God. Verse 34 says, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. You see, I don't know this for sure, but I expect to see Nebuchadnezzar when I get to heaven, because this man, his heart finally changed. He speaks words, and I'm not reading the full chapter, but he speaks words at the end of verse of chapter 4 that he wrote himself that are worthy of a biblical psalm. He goes from, I believe in my gods and my gods alone. Remember last week we saw how he built a 90-foot-tall statue of Nebo, his pet god, and said, everybody bow before him or die. He goes from that to saying, there is only one God, and he's the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Worship him. He closes out the chapter with these words, verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. And what he's saying is, I am exhibit A. You walk around with your chest puffed out and your head swelled up, God is going to knock you down. So what does this story tell us? Two things. One about us and one about God. Let's talk about us first. Number one, in our hearts, we are all narcissists. Let's admit it. Let's just cope with that. We are all, I'm not saying we all have the mental illness that 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 young man had at the beginning of my sermon. I'm saying we all had those tendencies. We all, we're our favorite subject. And, And some of us, who are more outgoing, that, that becomes, oh, I, I want to be the person who tells the funny joke. I, I like to tell stories about myself. I like to talk about me. I like to be right. I like to have the last word. For people who are more inward and introverted, it, it, it takes more the form of, well, nobody likes me, and I wish things would be different. And it's still an obsession with self. Whether it's self-pity or self-inflation, It's still about self. And it's still, I don't want people to tell me I need to change. I don't want people to tell me what I'm doing wrong. I don't want to apologize. I don't want to repent. And the problem with that is not just that it makes us big fat jerks, which it does. Ask the person who has to live with you. The real problem is there's this really important project that God's been doing in your life since the day you first believed. See, a lot of us have been taught and have come to believe that salvation just means you go to heaven when you die. And you do, by the grace of God. Hallelujah. That's not what salvation is, though. That's not the totality of it. Salvation is the beginning of a process in which the Holy Spirit transforms you and me into the image of his perfect son. 
and takes away all that's just us and replaces it with all that's him and takes us, he saves us from what we were becoming and saves us to what we were created to be, which is glorious. But it can't happen to a narcissist. Narcissism gets in the way because we refuse to submit. We refuse to admit that God is right and we're wrong. It takes humility. It takes a humble heart. Only humble hearts can be saved. Only humble hearts can be transformed. Think about it this way. Imagine a basketball player who is so gifted. He can dunk from the free throw line. He can hit, he can hit three-pointers from all over the court. He is virtually unguardable. He grows up in a world where everyone bows down before his talents. His parents favor him over their other children. The teachers in his classes coddle him and refuse to give him failing grades so he'll still be eligible for the team. His coaches don't yell at him but yell at the other players. They're just glad he's, he's playing for them. He grows up in that environment and then goes off to college. And his, co- and his coach there says, yeah, you may be the most talented kid I've ever recruited, son, but you don't play defense. You need to learn to give an effort on the defensive end. I don't care how many points you can score. If you're not going to put out on defense, you're not getting off the bench. Now, that kid could get upset because he's never been confronted before. He's never been told you have to change. And he could quit the team and he could go home. And if so, he will waste the talent God has given him. Here's another example from the non-sports world. Imagine a young woman who is incredibly gifted in music, can pick up any instrument, and with hours she's, within hours she's learned how to play it, can hear a tune, and within minutes she can replicate it on a violin, a tuba, a piano, a harmonica. People have been coming to see her play solo concerts since she was a little girl, preschool age. She graduates and goes off to a prestigious music academy, and the director there says, young lady, you are incredibly gifted. I'm in awe of your talent, but if you're going to play in my orchestra, you have to learn to read music. Reading, you know, playing by ear is fine for those who only do solos, but you're not a soloist. You're going to be part of an orchestra. I need to be able to put a, a piece of music in front of you, and you need to be able to sight, read it, and play your part. If you can't do that, you can't be in my orchestra, and if you're not in my orchestra, you're not in my program, and she could quit and go home and say, no one talks to me that way. And if so, she will have wasted what God gave her. And there's a lot of us wasting what God has given us. And I'm not just talking about your innate talents and spiritual gifts. I'm talking about the person you were created to be, the person who your loved ones, your friends, and the lost people who know you are desperate to see. But they're never going to see that person as long as you're stuck in narcissism, as long as you refuse to humble yourself before the Lord. And that doesn't come naturally to any of us. So my challenge to you this week, one of my two challenges is pray, Lord, humble me. Humble me and show me where I need to change, where I need to grow. Humble me, Lord. Create in me a humble heart. Second thing we see is about God. Notice, God prefers not to have to hurt us in order to humble us. Not the best sentence I've ever written, but I think you understand what I'm saying, right? God would rather, when he gave us a warning, when he told us what we need to change, he would rather us repent right then before he brings the hammer down. He gave Nebuchadnezzar 12 months to repent. That's incredibly merciful. My question to you is, how many of us in this room are living in that year between the time God has given us a warning and said, here's where you need to change. 
between that day and the time God brings the hammer down. Because he will. God disciplines those he loves. The Bible is very clear on that. The same reason that a mother lets her infant daughter or toddler daughter cry it out in the crib. As a parent, I can tell you, that's, that's the worst night of your life, listening to your baby cry and cry and cry until they finally stop crying. And then you go in and check and make sure they're still breathing. But you do that because you don't want to have an 18-year-old sleeping in bed with you someday. Because you love them. You want them to have a functional existence. Same reason that a dad whose son takes his first car and wraps it around a telephone pole because he was out drinking with his buddies, the dad does not therefore say, oh, it's no problem, buddy. I got money. I'll buy you a new one. Even if he has the kind of money to do that, which few of us do, he doesn't do it because he loves his son. And he knows a little time of experiencing consequences of his foolish decisions is good. God will punish us. He will discipline us because he loves us, but he'd rather not. So my second challenge to you is pray, Lord, is there something I'm missing that you've been trying to say to me, some way you're trying to correct me? Maybe some person who's been, who's been telling me things that are critical that I've been ignoring because I've been taught that it's all about believing in yourself. Isn't that the theme of every kid's movie we see? And you don't listen to anybody who says negative things because they're just haters and well, maybe, Lord, you're trying to speak to me through them. Am I missing something? From Even as a parent, am I missing something from one of my kids? Am I missing something from my spouse, from my parents, from my boss, from that person that annoys me? Because they're always negative. But maybe, what if you're speaking to me through them? Lord, show me, because I don't want to miss the change you're trying to make in me. Would you pray that? Are you open enough? Are you willing? I think most of us are probably familiar with Denzel Washington, one of the bigger movie stars today. Uh, most don't know that Denzel is actually a church-going Christian man, grew up. His dad was a pastor. Uh, once he first became famous, uh, he tells the story of going home to visit his mom. His dad was passed away by this time, but he sat down in the living room with his mom in their home in Philadelphia and said, Mom, can you believe how famous I've become? Did you ever think when I was growing up I'd get to be this big? You know, sort of like Nebuchadnezzar, look at this, look at what I've done. And the mom, Mrs. Washington, said, boy, do you, did you really just say that? Do you really think you did this all on your own? You want to know something you can do on your own? There's a mop and a bucket over there. You can take those and start mopping the floor all on your own. You know how many times me and the other little old ladies in our church got together and prayed for you, how, many, how much holy water we splashed on your behind. And I love that story. Because all of us know that if you really want to get humble, you go home. Because at home, they know you. They love you, but they're not impressed with you. But if you really want to get humbled, even better than going home, even better than seeing mom and dad again, the best way to be humble is to stand at the foot of the cross. On that cross where Jesus died, where the wrath of God was satisfied, Look up into the eyes of the one who created the whole world, the whole universe, who knows everything about you, every hair on your head, who knows every sin you've ever committed, and yet, and yet, came down and took upon your sin upon himself, died in your place. You look up into those eyes and you suddenly realize, I've got no reason to be proud. 
In fact, the only thing that matters about me is not what I look like or what my income level is or, or how my kids turn out or what house I live in. The only thing that matters about me is the God of the universe came down to save me. And that eliminates pride. And that stomps the narcissism out of you. Let's live at the foot of the cross, won't we?